and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, live from Money 2020 in Europe. I am David Breer, and in today's episode, we're going to be asking, what can crypto learn from traditional finance? That's a bit of a a soft spot there, isn't it? It's going to be an interesting topic to to go through. Uh, We want to get into the weeds from this one and actually have a look at things like products, things like UX, design, business opportunities, operations, and much more along with that in entail as well. Uh, we've got some very special guests, as always, to argue both sides of this debate uh, and actually have a look at whether there are any crossovers, what can traditional finance learn from crypto, and where can they both do a little bit better? There's lots of opportunities still on the table, isn't there? All right, let's get going. Uh, first off, making her FinTech Insider debut, I am joined by Louisa Murray, who is the Chief Operating Officer, UK and Europe at RailsBank. Uh, oh, you guys actually have a new name, don't Rails-a. you, Louisa? Railsa. Jeez. All right. Well, well, congratulations with the rebrand. Um, tell us a little bit more about Railsa and um, how's, your, how's your conference been? Yep. Great conference so far. And thank you for inviting me on here. Very excited to be here. Uh, but as you said, I'm COO of Railsa for UK and Europe. Uh, been with them pretty much from the beginning, so about six years. And previous to that, I was 20 years trading uh, in the city. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's great to be in fintech. Um, much much more exciting. Banking's dead, but we'll talk about that a little bit later in the context of crypto. Well, it's nice to see the problems and be able to do something about it. Yeah, isn't it? So, exactly. And so we're leading embedded finance experience provider. So allowing all sorts of companies to embed a financial product in their customer journey. Very, very cool. Uh, well, uh, no doubt we'll have you on uh, Fintech Insider to come and talk about the name change in more detail yeah. at some point. Yeah, uh, I'd like that. Uh, but I mean, after six years of calling you Rails Bank, it's like changing one of the names of your kids, isn't it? it yeah, must, that must, must be really difficult. The pangs to, yeah, of anxiety. Slight delay in the yeah. naming. But, uh, a few, few conversations about how you say it as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's always good to be slightly mysterious, I find, exactly. but uh, <laughs> maybe that's something people say about me, not that I say about me. But uh, All right. Uh, next up, making a welcome return, we have Jason Mikula, who is founder and publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome back, Jason. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. I know you've been on the show, but I don't think you've been on the show with me. So this is your debut with me. I promise it won't be painful. It's always going to be fun, you know. Good. Looking forward to it. What, um, tell us a little bit more about Fintech Business Weekly, because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of overlap with Fintech nerds wanting to talk about all different types of stuff. So tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I started uh, writing and publishing the newsletter about two years ago at this point, sort of a pandemic hobby that's grown into a... Uh, I don't know, part-time job and really drawing on my experience uh, in the consumer credit and banking sector, right? So recovering a pusher of credit cards, student loans, personal loans, you know, at companies like Goldman, Enova, LendUp. So drawing on, you know, my experience in those sectors to sort of write and analyze about themes in banking, fintech, and occasionally in crypto relevant to uh, today's topics. Fantastic. And there's always so much happening, isn't there? It's, uh, we all repent leaving banking in very different ways, don't we? Uh, there's, uh, there's almost like a six years now of uh, newsletters to repent from the, the sense of it, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Uh, last but by no means least, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have the one and only Dave Birch, advisor, investor, author of very many books at this stage. Dave, you've done Before Babylon, Beyond Bitcoin, and most recently, The Currency Cold War. How's it going, dude? That's going really well. It's it's actually great to be back at the event. I know people. people. Like, t- turns out, turns out we turns missed out them. I quite like them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know? I wouldn't have put money on you being a people person before the <laughs> pandemic, but but now, like scarcity is a is a thing, isn't it? You know? It's great to have so many people, but also I 
they made a nice atmosphere as well. Mm. It's fun walking around chatting to people. So yeah, it's been a really good couple of days. Yeah, it's right. I'm glad glad you've enjoyed it. Did you uh, did you go out to the party last night, or were you, you were shying retiring and went home early? Uh, no, I'm sorry to say I was giving the after dinner speech at the Waldorf Astoria oh, last night. Uh, Dave, you may have seen it walking past. Uh, so yeah, uh, they wouldn't let me in. To be fair, right? so we had a uh, rather nice menu and rather nice wine. So yes, it was a bit of a late night. Very nice, very nice. Well, gone up in the world over the pandemic. It's nice to see everybody doing so well. All right. Well, um, great to have you all here. Let's dive into it, though. Um, let's um, start by maybe looking at crypto a little bit more broadly. Then, so it's having its moment, uh, or it's had its moment, depending on your perspective on, on life. In that sense, um, likewise, uh, traditional financial institutions have started to warm a little bit more to both it from a technological perspective, but also crypto more broadly in that sense. And that's seen obviously quite a lot of variations when it comes to cryptocurrency pricing and whether it is or isn't going to be changing the entirety of the world that we're, we're sort of seeing from a financial services perspective. But maybe if we start with a bit of an icebreaker, a bit of a quick fire, get everybody warmed up, you know, get the hangover away from the <laughs> last night's parties, uh, all that red wine at the Waldorf, I know, Dave. Um, but if we start with a quick fire round, what one word would you use to describe the crypto industry right now? Go on, Jason, I'm going to chuck, chuck you in there straight away. Uh, it's hyphenated, but state of flux, you know, things are changing. All right, changing. What do you think, Luke? Exciting. All right, Dave. Stalling. Stalling. Ooh. All right. Well, we'll we'll dig into those in a little bit. How about traditional financial services? What What do you think there? We'll stick in the same order. Um, recalibrating. Okay. That sounds good. Dead. Dead. Oh, right. <laughs> More controversial. Dave. Recalibrating is a good word. Uh, digging in, maybe. Okay. So sort of retrenching in that sense, or digging in as in digging in the they're, effort. They're defensive. Okay. All right. Um, what's your favorite thing about crypto right now, Jason? Uh, the sense of possibility, right? Uh, and, and that has positives and drawbacks, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Okay. Luke? I think it's the sen- similar, but the sense of being a pioneer as well. There's been nothing like this new for mm. such a long time. Yeah, potential for sure. Yeah. Dave? My favorite thing is all of those, like, code is law, smash the state, we don't need no stinking badges crybabies going whining to the FBI when their smart contracts go wonky and all their money gets stolen. Viva la revolution there in that sense. Yeah, there's a, there is a, a difference in that sense of almost the anar- sort of anarchist nature of that, isn't it? Everyone's anarchistic until their grandma presses the wrong button in an email and suddenly a house belongs to someone in Vladivostok. It's very true, very true. All right, what's the biggest frustration though, other than grandma losing her house? Uh, fraud and scams, legitimacy. Okay. Luke? Yeah, transparency. And, yeah. Dave? I, I think to, 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 to fit it in your sort of broader title about what we can learn is like sometimes when you talk to the crypto, there's like, oh, well, you know, it's like the Wild West and, and this sort of thing, which is sort of true. Um, but they may have missed the fact we're not in the Wild West anymore. Like if the Wild West was the best way to organize financial services, we'd still be doing it. Yeah. Um, but it's not. And it is kind of strange that all of the, you talk about all the scrap, I mean, it is suffused with criminality and scams. Mm. And but in a way, they're the same things that were happening 100 years ago. Like pe- nowadays, people start newsletters to, under- in those days, people bought newspapers to run fake stories about the railroad stocks yeah. and all this sort of thing. It's like, we know that actually that kind of caveat emptor I mean, it does really kind of annoy me, you know. It sounds, if you're a 19-year-old 
computer science under it sounds great like people should be responsible for their own keys and look after their own stuff and make their own decisions it's just not true like that's a world where yeah, it's a world of warlords it's a world of the, the strong exploiting the weak and if you see what happened I mean terror is a very good case study of this if you if you look at what happened there basically I mean I don't want to sort of slight anybody but you know basically all the rich insiders got cashed out all the people that lost all the money were the nurses and taxi drivers that have been somehow told this was a viable route to financial security yeah. and it's it's just not right yeah you know? and, I, and I think that um, we'll definitely dig into a lot more as we go through but that in the sense of cryptocurrency in the sense of NFTs in the sense of all of the things that are happening with digital assets it's it's sadly the people who uh, cannot afford to lose that money who generally are it's the people who can afford to lose it who seem to be able to cling on to it long enough which is uh, it's quite odd but we'll, we'll unpack that in a, in a little bit uh, a little bit more detail in, in a second um, I, I guess moving into more sort of long form then uh, apart from Dave uh, in that space, <laughs> um, what, what, what are the biggest things that we can actually learn then so in terms of crypto learning from traditional finance I mean the starting point for this would probably obviously be being in some sort of regulation would be nice um, but do you think cryptocurrencies are are wanting that, or not just cryptocurrencies, but crypto companies. You know, your, your point, the that sort of anti-establishment, the decentralization of things and moving away from control capabilities. I mean, it's when, you know, if punk rock and sort of pop, would that still make it punk rock? You know, and actually a lot of the things that we're sort of seeing in this sense in terms of, you know, the diehard crypto fans don't really want it to be regulated in that sense because it's their secret special thing. Like, what do you think? I mean, should they be learning more from traditional players when it comes to regulation? I mean, I think that it, we should be careful of painting, you know, the crypto ecosystem with an overly broad brush. Yeah. So I think within... Mainly because they're very volatile on Twitter. Like, yeah. don't do that. Yeah. Like, don't enjoy that. So. Um, but I think you're right. There are, you know, segments of that ecosystem. You, know, you guys use the word anarchist. I think of it more as, you know, hardcore libertarian, uh, where, you know, the... the some, lack of, some good marketing right there. Yeah. The lack of regulation is a feature, not a bug for some of them. I think that there are other parts of the ecosystem that understand the legitimacy that you get by adopting some amount of regulation. And you'll see this even in sort of consumer-facing websites that tout, you know, we're uh, regulated by the U.S. government. And what they mean is, you know, we're a money services business, we're registered with FinCEN, has nothing to do with consumer protection. So they understand that, you know, to attract more people, particularly your average end consumer, you need to be able to express some kind of legitimacy. And they understand that regulation uh, can help give that legitimacy. I mean, why do you think um, you know, people want to see Bitcoin within 401ks? Yeah, there's a distribution component. But if I'm locking into my, in the US, you know, my retirement plan is through my uh, employer. If I'm logging into that portal and I see you know, Fidelity, uh, ETF, Vanguard ETF, and Bitcoin below that, it has implied legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that, that, you know, for the segments of that ecosystem that are looking to increase access and distribution, they see regulation as a way to gain legitimacy. Yeah. I guess the, the challenge with regulation or being part of a, you know, 401k or, you know, it, it being uh, legitimized in that sense as an investable asset is tax. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so almost the, the challenge that comes with being part of mainstream is almost the 
the part that people really rally against when it comes to the, the existing system in, in that broad sense, isn't it? So, and, and I guess it, it, that sort of plays, plays into a little bit what you were talking about, Dave, which is if you're part of one part of it, you sort of, you end up being part of a lot of it, don't you? Yeah, I, I, tax is certainly one issue about that, but I also think lawsuits are a, are a big issue with that. I, I, you, you can see what some people are thinking, which is if you allow people to store cryptocurrencies in like retirement plans, or whatever, those cryptocurrencies go to zero. The lawsuits will put PPI to shame. Like the, the, the idea that you allowed people. So that, that, it's probably too soon for that sort of thing. Digital assets, I think, are a different thing. So in that, though, Dave, sorry, sorry to to interrupt you, but mis-selling in PPI, there was somebody to blame. Like, how? Who would be to blame, though? In a, is it the? Would it then be the regulator that has legitimised it? Therefore, the regulator was to blame, or would it be the distributors of the the coins and the? You'd have to ask a lawyer. I mean, my guess would be the distributors. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer. In in the 401k example, you know, the employers have a fiduciary obligation to their employees. So there, you can see, you know, I'm going to go sue whatever Ford because they made Bitcoin available in my 401k. Bitcoin went to zero. They uh, didn't fulfill their fiduciary obligation. Mm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that that then sort of ties into the point around education, though, doesn't it? Because almost that's the the secondary point here in terms of what can the what can they learn from traditional financial players. I mean, are financial players doing that well enough to educate people about just normal financial products in the sense? You know, cryptocurrency is a and actually crypto assets much more broadly are far more complicated to explain in that sense than you know a loan would be but still traditional players struggle quite dramatically to explain those those terms yeah absolutely i mean you don't get ifas going around the country selling bitcoins do you and it is finding that fine line between taking the excitement out of it all and you know making it a fun thing to do as well as doing your day job and everything but to be regulated so everyone's protected. So I'm, I'm in, in this instance, I'm in favour of being regulated to some degree. Yeah, we definitely don't get IFAs, but to your point, Dave, every taxi driver over the last couple of years has told me, <laughs> have you heard this thing, uh, Ripple was the one most recently that I had, have you heard this thing called XRP? Apparently it's going to go to three, and I'm like, hmm. But uh, are you getting that lately? Not so much from taxi drivers, but I, I do see a... I think a slightly disturbing thing that you see on Twitter, I mean, because I, I get it on Twitter because people replying things where, I mean, perhaps not necessarily taxi drivers, but other perhaps marginalized or sometimes excluded groups have been kind of sold crypto as a, as a route into, and, and, and there's something wrong with that. That's not quite working out right. So, but that's distinct from the issue you were talking about. about I mean, I agree with you about the, about the retirement plans and Bitcoin. So I think those are two slightly different issues, but they're both concerning. And I think... You know, as a kind of, I think we're all kind of responsible industry professionals. You, you do have to think about the big picture on this kind of thing. You know, we're trying to make an infrastructure for a new and better financial services system that serves everybody better. There are lots of things wrong with the current system. Some of those could be fixed by elements of crypto, but um, just like putting the consumer in charge. I mean, giving that's not the solution. Yeah. Uh, but is that is that then almost sort of bastardizing what crypto was meant to be in the first place? Was it was it ever really designed to be a mainstream adoption replacing the dollar, you know, was it meant to be that? You know, are we just getting a bit carried away with the depends on who you t- I mean like if you ask me, I mean I could make a cogent argument for the fact that Bitcoin is essentially a protest movement. It's not it, it's not really a 
replacement for fiat currency or anything else. It was a protest against, uh, uh, with some valid elements to it. So I think that's that's a, a much more philosophical question than actually it sounds at first, David. It's actually quite a deep question. Thanks. I appreciate it. No, no, no. I, mean, I meant it as a compliment. And, and the answer may have changed from, you know, 10, 12 years ago to now. I mean, the more people who hold assets in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, you could see it get to a point where the phrase too big to fail is a big cliche, but if it's shoved in everyone's retirement plans and Bitcoin's dropping precipitously, all of a sudden you have uh, you know, a rationale or political pressure for governments to bail it out, which is the exact antithesis of, of sort of yeah. the, the origin story of it, you know, coming out of 2008, Occupy Wall Street and all of that. So I think that, that where we are now even with, you know, OG Bitcoin is quite a different place than perhaps, you know, when the white paper was published, whatever, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Is that a, a part of, uh, you know, the problem or the solution in that sense in terms of where, where it's going, though? Because, uh, and I, I sort of see this every time there's a problem, people sort of put it off of like, it, well, it's not it's not really a problem. It's like, well, the downturn, yes, but wait, you just, you wait three years and like, you know, it'll all come good in the change. Like, are we, are we sort of almost forgoing you know, today for tomorrow in that sense, in terms of where those can, things can be. Because again, if you look today, the people who have lost money are, you know, the most vulnerable people. They're, they are people who have been convinced. I mean, it wasn't long ago, uh, Laura, producer, you'll remember this one, like in WeWork, we bumped into 40 people being told that Bitcoin was the best investment thing. And it was like this weird... Ponzi in, um, brainwashing like the thing. moon is. Yeah. We went and sat in there and we were like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, you know, who are you people and why? Like, it was so weird. But if we just accidentally bumped into that thing, that must be happening around the world to really vulnerable people, you know? Did you, did you ever listen to that, that BBC podcast, The Missing Crypto Queen? Yes, I Jamie heard that one as well. Yeah. Which was an astounding piece of work. I mean, that was podcast of the year by by a long while. But that's not a thing that's in the past. Like that that was a famous and exciting and interesting story. But that story, I'm sure, is happening all the time around the world. You know, so. Yeah. Now, I think if we're being kind of trying to be thoughtful about where this is going, I think we should probably disentangle sort of, and I know people hate me for saying this, but let's just pull apart the cryptocurrencies from the interesting new technologies. Sure. Because if you were going to try and convince me that I should put cryptocurrencies in my retirement plan, I'm not so sure. Maybe in 10, 20 years' time, that will become a viable choice. Now, I think it's too soon. I'm, maybe I'm a cautious person. I'm not sure. Um, if you're going to say to me, well, the technology of tokenization and decentralized finance is going to radically change the way finance... Actually, I kind of agree with that. Sure. I, th I think that's right. So, so I know people hate you disentangling the crypto and the, t but I sort of do. And I think we are on the verge of radically new ways of doing things mm. in financial services. It's just those radical new way of doing things probably aren't Bitcoin. Yeah. Do you, uh, I mean, we've had these conversations in the past in terms yeah, of yeah. like different things in there. So, as you say, you've got currencies, you've got assets more broadly, and yeah, yeah. thing that's happening with NFTs. And then, like I say, you've got the underlying technology from a DLT perspective. But do you re do you think though that uh, I mean, have we actually got to the point where DLT is not just a solution looking for a problem to solve? 
because I, I know we've had this discussion many times before with regards to identity. It makes sense in the context of actually, you know, DLT could be a, a very big facilitator in terms of making those things happen. But are we really there yet? And actually, I mean, it's very difficult to put a technology in your retirement. You know, I mean, you've got to have a, a company fundamentally doing something with it in order to to make it viably an uh, investable item, right? I, you know, obviously, I'm going to react to the you bringing up identity because that's the missing component to a lot of this. So, as kind of building blocks, I can sort of see we have tokenization. And there are some very interesting aspects of shared ledger technology. You mentioned transparency. I think that's already, yeah. you know, um, Mark Benioff said at Davos a couple of years, like if we want to rebuild trust in the financial system, we need radical transparency. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. And shared ledgers can deliver some of that radical transparency. So we, we have that building block. We have the nascent DeFi protocols and this idea that you can construct protocols to exchange these different kinds of assets rather than having intermediaries. Oh, that's quite interesting and that's... Uh, we don't have the identity component at all yet. That's completely missing at the moment. And one of the reasons why those scams are just so completely out of control is because we don't have even the most rudimentary digital identity infrastructure to connect to the other new infrastructures. And I think you're dead right about that. That's a really... You've been very complimentary today. No, I'm making you for two years, You're mate, making an important point, you know. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll move on. There'll be more compliments. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? It's a little, little loving today, you know. I don't want to make you guys feel uncomfortable, though, so we'll... Uh... <laughs> but, um, I mean, maybe one area that... I, I guess, I mean, crypto gets uh, quite a bad rap on the user experience perspective. There's, there's, I mean, a lot of people are jumping through all different uh, UX, bizarre UXs in order to get to execute in that sense. So do you think this is potentially a place that traditional financial services is maybe a little bit more ahead of the curve? I mean, you, you were quite, you know, I think banking is dead was yeah, your exact brutal. words. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but, but what do you think? I mean, uh, is that a place where traditional FS has an advantage? I said... <laughs> Maybe at the moment, but I think that's a short term. Uh, I mean, I think crypto, um, we work with lots of exchanges and, and companies that are offering this. And I think we've come a long way in the last couple of years. Onboarding used to take a couple of weeks, uh, but now we're down to you know, the minutes like a normal banking uh, or neobank app. So I, I, I think we've gone past that point of learning anything from traditional finance on this. Okay. It's interesting that early days of crypto were very reminiscent of like the early days of programming. It was like staring into DOS, you know I mean? It was like you had to know a lot to be able to make it to do anything, yeah. whereas actually it is sort of turned a bit of a corner on that. And Jason, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that's right. There's still, um, I think, a way to go in certain markets. You know, I... Um, I live in the Netherlands, I have a small business in Mexico, I'm American. Some are sort of further ahead than others, particularly in the incumbent establishment category. Uh, I mean, if you think of the crypto ecosystem, you know, broadly, DeFi, Web3, etc., it is still, comparatively speaking, quite young. And I think the UX uh, has not yet caught up to the underlying technology as far as abstracting the complexity of interacting with it. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we better like at least fly the flag for the other side of this uh, this argument in that sense, in terms of looking at this from the other way. I mean, what can traditional finances learn from cryptocurrency companies or people who are more embracing the change that that can come along? Um, what can crypto offer its customers that traditional financial services just just can't in that sense? I mean, do you think there's anything for them to to pick up? Um, what, do, what do you think, Jake? Yeah. I mean, having worked in more traditional fintech. I think that one of the constraints 
is thinking within the, in some cases, very old regulatory framework. And, and I apologize to you guys and now your listeners for my American U.S. bias, but some of the underlying regulations, Fair Credit Reporting Act, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, uh, that dictate the kinds of data you can use um, and what you can do with it, these date to the 1960s and 1970s, and they have a very real repercussion on things like you know credit scoring, access to credit, you know even in some ways identity. And you know if you're a young fintech in the U.S. or in the U.K., you know you have a duty to your customers, to your investors, to operate hopefully, you know, within the sort of legal regulatory compliance environment that exists. I think the, the thing I find most interesting about crypto and that perhaps traditional banking can learn is if we, for a moment, imagined this stuff didn't exist and sort of greenfield opportunity went back to first principles, how would we go about constructing this stuff? Yeah. Now, I don't necessarily think it, the answer would be crypto in its current incarnation, but the exercise of, you know, we've been constrained, particularly uh, in the U.S., given the inability of, you know, government and regulators to do anything, um, you know, existed in a very sort of stasis environment that has not evolved with the ecosystem, which is very rapidly evolving. And so it's sort of, for me, that's sort of the biggest takeaway or the biggest opportunity is if you could go back and do this over would you do it the way you're doing it now? Probably, almost certainly not. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, um, you know, most of us in most walks of life would definitely not do what we ended up doing, right? But you end up in that situation, don't you? And almost um, financial services is, you know, sedimentary rock, isn't it? It's hundreds of years of probably making the wrong decision and then, you know, trying to build on that and do something different in that sense. But, I mean, a lot of organizations that we work with are like, we need to solve these problems, these problems, these problems. And yes, it would always be easiest to build something from scratch. But getting from brown to green is bloody hard, you know, in that sense, in terms of doing it. So it, it is interesting, isn't it? I, I do buy into that. But equally, I'd sort of almost buy into, wouldn't it be nice if we were all nice to each other? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, which is like, right, but just not practical yeah. in that sense, in terms of where we're going. I mean, what do you think, Dave? Uh, you know, I, I guess if, I, if I'm trying to sort of think into the position of sort of conventional financial services provider, the thing I'm kind of like most jealous about in, in the crypto space is the innovation side of things. And, you know, we, we, we if, I, if I'm representing the face of, you know, the old, <laughs> oh. uh, but we do need to find ways to, to, and to, to capture more of that innovation and allow people to develop new things. Now, I have to say, I think we're making some good steps in that. I mean, I'm sitting opposite someone who enables this for people every day. You know, so we've taken some pretty good steps with open banking. And actually, to be fair, the Bank of England has been, you know, pretty advanced on this stuff. We were the first to allow settlement accounts to non-banks. I think yeah. Wise was the first yeah. people to get that. They've proposed the omnibus accounts for central bank reserves. I think Finality are going to get the first... Like, so, to be honest, we, they are moving in that sort of thing. But, you know, it, it is a factor that if you're uh, a kid, you know, and you have a brilliant idea for doing something, you know, you, you, you can pick up the API and start building something on crypto, and you, you can't do quite the same thing. In, in Now, should it be as permissionless as that? Clearly, I think not, because I think there should be some constraints on it. But I could see arguments that say, for example, if you take central bank digital currencies, where a key element of the Bank of England's proposals around that, which I agree with uh, very strongly, is about innovation. It's about if you had money with an API uh, and, you know, there's no credit risk and it's all central bank reserves and all this sort of thing, 
could you give that to people and let them build some amazing new stuff, which we can't imagine? Well, actually, probably yes. Mm. You know, w would I rather they were doing it with a central bank digital currency than with Bitcoin? Actually, probably yes as well. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from some of those examples. Yeah, and, and I guess we are seeing that around the world, aren't we, in terms of, I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, the Fed, or we've seen DFS, or we've seen the FCA, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of regulators around the world really look at this and look yeah. at the opportunities. The sandboxes that they, yeah. I think the FCA one of the first to have the real sandboxes. Yeah, but I guess it comes back to your point earlier on around the Wild West, though, right? It's like actually, you know, a Wild West in a sandbox is like, it's limiting risk in that yeah. sense, isn't it? In terms of actually the exposure. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, back to the point around education, a lot of organizations have been in the place where they're just trying to figure out what this really is and what does it mean, you know? And that does build on your point earlier on around technology. It's like, well, you need to understand it before you start doing something productive with it. And it's just, how long is that going to take, right? Yeah, but I think on, on some of those things, I mean, I, I don't know what you feel about this, but on the open banking side of things, like one of the one of the criticisms earlier on was, oh, well, nothing much is happening. And But, but the point is, it, it took a bit of time for people to learn how to use the APIs and what you're going to do with and it. And, and also, I guess, with the wisdom of hindsight, because the UK was early into yeah. it, we can now see that actually SMEs were the were the low hanging fruit on that sort of so so actually it, it took a little while to get thing. I mean, should we really beat ourselves up about that? Probably not. I mean if you take that over into here, if we start having, you know, you know, they're talking about regulating tokens along the lines of the electronic money license, you know, with these extensions to electronic money licensing. If that happens in the next year or so or whatever, is that really that bad? I mean, does it really have to happen? tomorrow. I mean, in a way, if we have this kind of stronger regulatory infrastructure that makes it easier for people to build stuff that isn't going to be, you know, obvious <laughs> scabs and rug pulls, you know, does six months a year make any big... I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm happy to see the sort of cautious approach continue. I think that, I don't know what you feel, but the lessons from open banking, I think, are quite illustrative in this Yeah, and I, and I think it has, you're, you're absolutely right, it has taken a little while to work into different use cases as well, you know, the lending, using the open banking, not everyone's on experience and things like that. And it's, it's really played into, you know, younger people, younger generation, and the innovation, they can build products that the, the consumers want, mm -hmm. rather than what the banks think they need is yeah. absolutely that th they can be used now and for good yeah well the, the banks have definitely sort of changed their tune haven't they in that sense i mean it, jamie diamond's always an obvious target because he's one of the few people who actually go out there and actually say anything quite interesting isn't he in terms of uh, you know not quite putting his money where his mouth is but definitely using his mouth which is good um, but i mean he's been famous to say i'm not a big fan of uh, bitcoin i'm not a supporter i don't care about it i have no interest in it but on the other hand, clients are interested and I don't tell them what to do. So it's like, you know, and they are increasingly making more and more investments. I guess it's, you know, back to the points we've been making about actually the maturity of the market, the maturity of the thinking, and actually their understanding of it as well. I mean, we sort of want, to your point, we want our regulators to be cautious, really. We want our banks to be cautious because if not, if everybody's, you know, risky and, you know, embracing the chaotic landscape of everything, then uh, a lot of those businesses will cease to exist, right, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I tend to think about it through two different lenses, right? One, which we've alluded to already, is the consumer protection lens. And that is, you know, should this product exist at all? And I feel like that might be a controversial question, but we don't need to look that far back, you know, to 2008 to say, hey, maybe some of these, you know, 
reverse amortizing adjustable rate mortgage kind of products shouldn't should not be available because they are just bad. So it's like, okay, should it exist? If it exists, who should have access? So in the U.S., you have this you know, accredited investor framework where if you meet you know X Y Z criteria, you can whatever invest in private equity, invest in you know startups, etc. And then what are the right you know what's the right disclosure regime? And so I think that this is part of it is a sort of philosophical or ideological discussion of you know, what, what kind of framework should apply to these cryptocurrencies. Is it caveat emptor? And as long as you know, I'm giving a consumer investor disclosures, he and she should be able to invest in whatever they want? Or are there some products that are you know, too toxic or too terrible, they shouldn't exist at all? Or is it you know, somewhere in between you know, accredited investor disclosures, et cetera? And to be honest, you know, I think this is all clearly still being worked out. Yeah. And is that, a, I guess that is a challenge for the framework of how we assess these things anyway, because any new form factor we assess with the old framework, don't we? Mm-hmm. And almost, I mean, the, the example that was given a minute ago about open banking, like everybody agreed that open banking was eminently sensible, but actually like working out liability was like a, a thing. And I'm still not sure people have really clocked on exactly where that sits in terms of that sense. So is it is it that we're using an old framework to look at a new model? Uh, that, 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 that's an interesting example, though, Dave, because, because actually everyone knows exactly where the liability rests because it rests with the ASPSPs. I mean, it's absolutely clear in the regulation. You know, the banks can use all sorts of banking as a platform staff and give people access, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, they are liable. Yeah. And actually, that creates a safety and a platform that people want. How how many different people do you have on your platform at the moment? Uh, So we have a couple of hundred customers, businesses. And And each of those has... And we have multi-millions of consumers at the end of this, and businesses. So that's, I'm just making the word, that safety has created a massive business for you. Yeah, yeah, and and us being regulated as well, not just providing the technology, but providing the regulation and having agents of ours that we you know, are under scrutiny by us, you know, 24-7. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's super important. Mm. And and our customers have to appreciate that, you know, if, it, if, if they did something wrong, it's not just our license, it's all our customers' licenses yeah. as well that are at risk. But there's value to that certainty. I mean, to your point earlier, you know, if my board ape gets stolen, you know, my major recourse is like going on Twitter and complaining and hoping that, you know, OpenSea, a centralized platform, you know, freezes it or that Yoga Labs, you know, freezes it and like gives me a new one. And that is not, you know, that is not a clear, transparent uh, set of rules that everyone understands and can abide by. Also, I can guarantee you, if your bold ape does get stolen, you post about it on Twitter, you'll get 10,000 tweets from people who, like, yes, we're the official people who can fix this, just click on this link. <laughs> you know, the whole thing's never ending. So just to reflect back on that point you made a moment ago, I think one of the interesting examples we should feed into this, actually, is Wirecard. Yep. Because, because the biggest catastrophe in fintech that we can think of, you know, in the last couple of years, in the UK anyway, was Wirecard. Like, Wirecard turned out to be completely riddled with, and you know, the whole thing collapsed, and everybody lost all their money, as it should have been. But customers didn't lose a penny. No. You know, Wirecard had an electronic money license. Under the electronic money license, the customers had money had to be held in in bank accounts, basically, and they got them. So that kind of illustrates the fact that you know you can have that kind of safety, and actually it has been battle tested. It like part of my confidence in using your services is 
the fact I've seen it. Yep. You know, there's used to be a thing, you know, when I was first in here, people used to talk about the Marks and Spencers effect, mm. which was if you've bought something, for, I should say for listeners, Marks and Spencers is a famous English retailer. Um, if you bought something from Marks, you bought a jumper from Marks and Spencers that had a hole in it, you took it back, they gave you another one. That made you more likely to buy something from Marks and Spencers than someone who'd never bought. In a, so it's what they used to call the expectation of redress. Mm. So if you know that things will get fixed, it makes you more likely to buy the stuff, right? So in, in a way, we, we've had that experience. Yep. It's, it's worked. It showed us that it does work. And so there's a lot of confidence in that sector yeah. now. I mean, yeah. I'm sure all of your clients have that confidence. Well, absolutely. We migrated over, you know, multiple millions of consumers, um, you know, 40 card programs and customers and everything, and not one found. Exactly. I think, you know, people don't understand how no. powerful that example is, yeah. I think. Yeah. And it took, you know, decades, if not centuries, of uh, experimentation and regulation in the traditional financial system to establish the confidence that people have. Yeah, that's fair. You know, I sometimes would argue... You know, some entities in the fintech space, and certainly a lot of entities in the crypto space, benefit from this established assumption that these things are safe. Because when you have banks fail in the US or in the UK, you know, depositors generally are going to be made whole. If you had, uh, you know, a brokerage fail, you know, I'm going to get my stocks back. That is not yet proven to be the case and, and arguably is not the case in the crypto ecosystem. And so they're benefiting from the trust consumers, investors have that is a result of these regulations that have been built up, usually in response to a crisis or a disaster over the course of centuries. I mean, uh, land speculation boom in Australia, bicycle bubble, you know, tulips here in the Netherlands. This is what regulations have been crafted to address, and now crypto is basically in warp speed reliving all of it. I, I think that's a really, you know, I think tulips is, given we're sitting in Amsterdam, I, mm. tulips is a really interesting example because I think, I'm, I'm not sure if people draw the right lessons from that. You know, the, when the tulip bubble collapsed, like the number of people who actually lost money was very small because the number, because it, you know, the, the speculation wasn't tulip bulbs, it was essentially futures in, in and, so, and only rich merchants had them. So basically, the number of people that lost money was, was actually quite small, and they were rich, and basically, who cares? You know, like, the Dutch economy wasn't devastated because the... But what came out of that was a regulated futures and options market in Amsterdam, which directly contributed to the growth of commerce on the Amsterdam... Like, people would come to the... Because the Amsterdam... The, the Bank of Amsterdam in those days was a payments bank. It was not a fractional reserve. And so... And then you had a stock exchange, then you had an insurance. So actually, you know, if something goes wrong and gets fixed properly, um, is that that bad? Maybe that's just part of the evolutionary. Like if something goes wrong, but the regulators step in and create the right kind of market after mm -hmm. that, then actually we're all better off because yeah, of learning that. Learning from mistakes. I guess yeah, the, yeah. the challenge on that, and, and I completely agree with you, and the challenge on that is almost like um, uh, you can only regulate something that people to recognize your ability to regulate to a certain degree. So actually, can the regulator step in and, and regulate these things in a, in a meaningful way? Do they really have the ability to do it? Because it, it is by nature a, a global thing. It's a global phenomenon. Does any one particular regulator have the ability to, to change that or make it happen? I do like your idea there about, you know, it is like watching the sims on fast forward you know it's like it's history sort of repeating itself and self sorting itself in in real uh, well 10 times speed you know it's uh, quite interesting yeah and if, and if if no 
if no normal people were losing money, none of us would care about it. I think what bothers all of us sitting around the table, I think, is the fact that basically some people are getting ripped off and yeah. that, that, that doesn't seem right, you know. And it does seem, I mean, again, you know, vulnerable people or people who haven't been exposed, you know, younger people who haven't been exposed to this level of risk or therefore loss before, uh, it, that's the exploitative nature. Well, there was that great piece in the, uh, there was the great piece in the FT a few uh, the, the, the woman who left the FT, Lucy, uh, so she became a teacher, and she and she wrote this fantastic piece in the in the FT about listening to kids in her classroom talking about cryptocurrency, and I clearly didn't really understand what was going on, and just just saw it as this kind of surefire way to make money. Well, that we all know that's not right, you know. So and 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 you know, as a as an industry, we have to kind of tackle that with how I don't know, but education and yeah. so on. Can I just ask you one thing? I am. One thing I am curious about on that kind of regular basis is how, how much of it is because crypto, like we started off by talking about the Wild West as the metaphor, um, which is a very American metaphor. You know, this thing about the frontier and there's, there's a fantastic book I like, Edward Baliesin's The History of American Fraud. Um, it's one of my favorite books, actually. Um, but that frontier thing, that idea of horse trading, that basically it's your fault if you get tricked. In the, I mean, that suffuses that, uh, and that's very different from kind of European mm-hmm. um, thinking about this sort of thing. So I, I wonder if part of the issue is crypto is kind of an American space in a way still. Mm. Uh, I think to some extent that's right. I mean, if I think broadly speaking of, you know, the U.S. approach to regulation, it's kind of this informed consent notion. I mean, not universally, but the idea of, you know, I'm going to give you the information and as long as I'm giving you the information, you know, you're empowered to make this decision for yourself. Yeah. You know, that doesn't tend to be where my sort of personal point of view falls as far as what might be optimal, given that, you know, not everyone, well, first of all, there's sort of human cognitive biases that lead us to, for example, undersave for retirement. And if you're saying you can determine how much you should be saving and there's very little, you know, government pension, governments or whatever, you know, in aggregate as a society, you tend to get, you know, negative outcomes. So, I mean, sort of where I fall versus where maybe your typical American falls is probably a little bit out of line. But then, hey, I live in the Netherlands now, so go figure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's definitely some some truth to what you're saying. I mean, to other David's earlier point about sort of, can this even be Wait, regulated? how did I become the other David? <laughs> I, I'm pointing, but you know, it's, it's a podcast. So it's um, going to be one, no, no, okay. Beyond being, you know, global and a decent amount of this activity taking place, you know, quote unquote, offshore, you know, when we're talking about DeFi, who are you regulating if there is not even a legal entity? I mean, at least with some of these things, you know, Tether ostensibly has a bank account, you know, in the Bahamas where all this money is stored. You know, there's at least a legal entity that somebody can try to regulate. But when you're talking about DeFi protocols, who who are you sending the cease and desist to or the you know request for information to when, when there is no legal entity? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to prove loss, but you also you've got to prove accountability of but, the loss. But, but wouldn't you think like in, in a kind of, if, if we're trying to imagine like a generation from now, like in, in a realistic model of how the financial sector would work in that area, you would have... Uh, institution, I mean, you wouldn't be working on open permissionless blockchains, or but you'd have institutions that were working on come some kind of shared ledger technology. They would be trading tokens uh, through, you know, smart contracts, but not smart contracts that the public are writing and just, you know, within the kind of. So they would be doing it not 
first sort of ideological, you know, smash the state, they'd just be doing it because it's cheaper to trade mm-hmm. tokens and to trade conventional instruments. That, to me, seems like quite a realistic vision of the future. You know, if, if you're not talking about... Um, if you're not talking about making the public responsible themselves for all of these things, if you're having this future that still has institutions in it, but they, they're using the new technology in sort of sensible ways, and they're, they're regulated, that doesn't seem so crazy to me. That seems like quite a plausible vision of the future. Yeah, and I think back to Jason's point earlier on, I think that feels like a, you know, a, a large evolutionary step of the existing system, but still an evolutionary step, right? It would be where we would go if we could make all the decisions and actually make it happen, right? But it could have new players in it because that regulatory frame, like, I mean, you, you just go back to that example of the electronic money institution, right? So, so the fact that anybody can be, I mean, we were talking about Wirecard, but, but basically anybody can apply for those licenses. That, that ought to, if it's done properly, if the licensing is right, that ought to bring in some of that innovation, shouldn't it, like new thinking? Because... I don't I mean, I'll pick a silly example, but suppose your new Ford uh, can do its own payments and negotiate with parking spaces and whatever. So then maybe Ford has an electronic money license and all Fords deal with Ford money and the exchanges will exchange Ford money for other kinds of money. And that sounds a little odd, but actually to me it seems more realistic than than pictures of chimpanzees with sunglasses on the basis of a new economy. <laughs> well, we will be back in just two seconds to talk a little bit more about the future. We'll be back with you in two seconds. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stable coins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. All right, we're going to round it out with a little bit more of a, a sort of a provocation of where we're going to go in the future. Okay. Is it going to be bored apes? Is it going to be Ford money? Is it going to be all of these different things in that sense? I mean, do, where, where do you think this is going to go? Are we going to see, you know, we've talked about these two things like it's some sort of West Side Story vibe, like the, there's no middle ground other than, you know, dancing and knives at this stage for there's really old-fashioned references that we're pulling out in this one, isn't there? So, uh, um, But um, what do you think? I mean, we're going to see more partnerships. Are we going to see kind of a, a comfortable middle ground for everybody involved? Yeah, well, I think we're already seeing more partnerships on this, I think. Um, you see some of the mainstream banks investing in some of the, the bigger crypto um, providers. 100% think that it's going to become, you know, I go, I go to Sainsbury's, I, I can choose to pay on my card, my credit card, I can choose to pay on my debit card, or I can pay with my crypto. Mm. So, yeah, 100%, and I think, um, yeah, this is, this is almost mainstream now. Yeah. So that's a that's an interesting step in the evolution of it, isn't it, when more and more people start to, you know, you're buying vegetables with it. It's a very different point in that stage. Absolutely. Isn't it? Well, who would have thought, you know, a couple of years ago that on a market store you'd be able to pay just with your debit card? 
there's no one or all taxis were always well, cash te- technically I would have because <laughs> we worked on some of the pin on glass stuff yeah, the, okay but no, sorry I mean I live in Norwich it's still not reached me <laughs> just yet but, uh, but uh, Jason what do you think I mean wh- how is this going to manifest itself over the next five yen five yeah. plus years I mean, when you say Ford money that does sound a little bit weird but in reality it's not right I have you know frequent flyer miles I have whatever Starbucks rewards points these are all essentially a form of currency or a form of value, even if it goes by sort of a different name. And I think that, you know, we're, we are going to continue to see the, you know, call it crossover of these two worlds. Now, the exact format that that takes, you know, am I storing all my money in Bitcoin because I think it's, you know, digital gold and a hedge against inflation? I mean, at this point, the record has shown that, that that's not the way that that asset is performing, at least in the current market. You know, am I going to gamble all my money on, you know, JPEGs? Personally, no. Uh, but I think that you will see, you know, particularly um, in sort of the company space, reward space, leveraging of the ideas, you know, if not the actual technology, right? Mm. So if I can go to Sainsbury and, you know, convert my Starbucks points and uh, yeah. buy something, you know, like, the technology exists to do that. Does it need to be a blockchain or a DLT? No. Do we need to call it cryptocurrency? No. But I think you're going to see some more flex in sort of the idea of what what is money, right? Or what is value? And, and I mean, yeah. really, we are already seeing that right now. Yeah. And do, does that, I mean, Dave, coming to you on that point, I mean, does that then just break down all of the walls of like the systems that we're talking about in this sense? Because, I mean, at that point where, I mean, given everything from a cryptocurrency perspective or from a DL2 perspective was all about decentralization, I mean, inherently we've built centralized regulators, centralized systems, centralized everything to manage these pieces. The, the view of the future that, you know, could be, which is we do still have these centralized things, but they're managing you know, digital assets, digital currencies in this sense. Is that, are we just, are we being slightly naive that that reality could happen? I mean, there's a reason why institutions exist, right? So if you didn't, if you didn't need those institutions, they wouldn't be there now because we've, we're hundreds of years into this banking kind of thing. So clearly there's a need for those kind of things to exist. I think if you're trying to think further forward into the future, I'm not sure that those examples quite work because I, what I would sort of imagine is I buy something from the supermarket and actually it's my AI that's paying the supermarket. Like, I won't really be part of that loop. And, and what they sort out between themselves, I don't really care. So if it turns out that the supermarket wants a square inch of the Mona Lisa, you know, two feet of office building, you know, some paint, you know, like, I don't care. Like, it's a boring thing. Like, let the machines sort that out machines will be able to trade much more complex and much more sophisticated instruments you know with with the purpose of reducing risk uh, at all kinds so i think if you if you're trying to think really futuristically i'm not sure we'd really be part of the loop to be completely honest i think the range of digital assets will be colossal mm-hmm. and it will be machines that are sorting them out and i you know matt harris from bain is someone i always take very seriously in this sector. He, he wrote a thing about, about a year ago in, in Forbes, making the very good point, which is if, if you can hold your wealth essentially as baskets of these liquid assets, you know, tokens, in, why would you ever convert them into the intermediary of money? I mean, wouldn't companies just exchange baskets of assets and not bother cashing out 
messing around with money and then cashing back in again at the other end. That's a really interesting point. Mm. So futuristically, I'm not sure we'll be in the loop. Mm. I mean, in the short term, are people going to use cryptocurrencies as a retail point of sale? Not obvious to me at all. Yeah. I mean, in in that future, that, that world of, uh, you know, machines making those decisions and currency being, you know, effectively, you know, really digital in that sense, I mean, the knock-on effect of that, I mean, we talk, we've talked, you know, quite jovially about apes or whatever, you know, but the knock-on effect of that from a money laundering perspective or from a, you know, uh, various nefarious things that, that those things well, that, fuel that's, is that's huge. Why that, yeah, that's why that identity infrastructure is such a... I, I know I sound like a broken record on this, but until we have that effective digital identity infrastructure, which we don't have at the moment, we, we can't really scale those markets up. Um, and in the UK, you know, our history on this... Is, is a little bit poor at the moment. And we've, we've tried for a few years to have a, a government digital identity that hasn't really worked. There were people like me, deluded idiots, who thought that the banks would eventually get their act together and sort out some sort of digital identity, but that hasn't happened. Um, There's always got to be a canary in the mine. Dave. There's always got to be the first one. So, uh, all right, on that note, guys, we are going to have to wrap this up. I think we could probably unpack every single one of these points as another <laughs> podcast and, uh, and, and keep going on this one. But uh, I think we can probably safely say you know, traditional financial services can learn a lot from crypto. Crypto can learn a lot from traditional financial services. But together, they can probably do pretty cool things in the future. So let's see where we get to on that one. No doubt we'll be talking about this a lot more in more shows. That wraps up this today's show, though. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your company? Lou? Yeah, Rails Bank or Rouser.com now. Even you're doing it, aren't you? <laughs> Uh, and we're in stage, much uh, stage. We've got a um, nice stand over there, B140. Very, very good. Jason? You can subscribe to my newsletter at fintechbusinessweekly.com and follow me on Twitter at MikulaJA. Very, very good. You might want to spell that out and then people will find yeah. you. It's uh, M-I-K-U-L-A-J-A. I should have picked a better handle. <laughs> it was early. You were very early. Dave? Uh, dgwbirch.com or at dgwbirch on Twitter. Very, very good. Uh, as for me, you can find me lurking mostly on LinkedIn these days. Thank you so much for listening. If you do like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Do not forget to leave us a review. Super duper helps other people to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on, I mean, like every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email us on podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.